As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. Today's podcast is an interview with Julie Fournier. Julie played college basketball for Colorado Christian University, and she now runs marathons and ultra marathons. She's also the author of a book called Daily Wisdom, 365 Days of Motivational Thoughts, Quotes, and Stories. And she also runs the popular Twitter account, Basketball Psychology. And her work is focused on sports psychology and helping athletes and coaches make the most of their athletic experience. And she's also working towards becoming a coach herself. And she's really skilled at pulling together different ideas and different quotes from different athletes and different anecdotes and stories and organizing them in a way that supports motivation and basketball psychology and it's clear that she's really impacting the space a lot. I link to her work in the show notes of this episode, so you should check out the book and the Twitter account, and you can connect with her online through her personal Twitter account as well. In this episode, I speak with Julie about her own playing career and her experience training for ultra marathons, which was really interesting. And then we spend a lot of time talking about the ideas that she presents in her book and focus specifically on the ideas that I resonated with And there's quite a bit of overlap between what she writes about and what I have been writing and talking about for the last couple years. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Julie Fournier. All right, Julie Fournier, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I want to start with your own playing career. Could you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and your youth sports experience? Yeah, so I grew up in the small town of Amelia Island, Florida. And sports aren't really big here. Everyone's just about the beach. So I was kind of alone. I spent my summers in the gym. Um, but I had a great experience just because I was absolutely in love with the game. Um, so I kind of grew up, you know, with the focus that I wanted to play basketball for as far as it took me, whether that was just high school or college or overseas or WNBA. Um, but it did take me to college. So I was very grateful for that experience. Nice. And were either of your parents athletes? Uh, my mom was a cheerleader in college, and my dad was a big surfer. Okay, nice. And so you just found yourself drawn to basketball. Did you play any other sports growing up? Yeah, I played soccer and flag football, and I ran track. But um, I remember the first time my parents took me to a basketball court, and I remember my first shot to this day. And <laughs> I missed it, but I fell in love with the challenge of, like, well, can I make the next one, you know? Um, so I fell in love with it right away, but they were the ones who introduced it to me. Nice, nice. 
And I'm curious about the recruiting process and where you thought about going to college and where you went first and that whole progression. So what what was your recruiting outlook like in high school? Yeah, so I didn't get much uh, interest out of high school. So I ended up going to the junior college route, which ended up being a great decision for me. Um, my coach there was really focused on, you know, character and development beyond just what you do on the basketball court, which really helped me find my passion in developing athletes um, character-wise. Uh, so it was great that I ended up going the JUCO route. And then after that, um, I remember my coach brought me into her office one day and she was like, Julie, I found the perfect school for you. And it was Colorado Christian University. And that ended up being a great fit for me. Okay. And where, what JUCO was it? It was Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida. Okay. Nice. And then you came out to Colorado. And what was your experience like at CCU? Yeah, I fell in love with the school and the mountains and the city right away on my visit. Um, and, you know, I was looking forward to a great playing career, but my junior year, I fractured my ankle and mm. then um, was expecting a great senior year after I rehabbed that. And then on the first week of school, I broke my hand, needed surgery, and had complications throughout the season. So I actually didn't really end up playing uh, much throughout uh, my career at CCU. I think it was like a total of 40 minutes or so. Um, mm. But it taught me a lot more than I could have learned if I was playing. Um, so I'm grateful for that experience. Interesting. Okay. And so, yeah, I want to move to what you're up to now. So could you talk just a little bit about what you're doing, the books you're writing, and kind of your overall, um, I don't want to I don't, job description or whatever you want to call it. What are you up to now these days? Yeah, so right now I'm taking a gap year uh, before I go to grad school, but I'm working on two books. The first one is called What Makes Great Teams, and it's about what makes great teams. And the second book is called Beyond Winning, and it's about how winning isn't everything, and it focuses on the process and your character. So I mostly spend my days writing and talking to teams and doing stuff like that. Nice. And have you always been a writer or interested in writing? How did you come to pursue these kinds of projects? I, I think my mom would tell you that I'm the least likely person who she ever thought would become a writer. Um, I really just hated school and doing homework and English class and writing essays and stuff like that. But uh, my sophomore year of college, I realized that there seemed to be a void of, you know, a resource that taught athletes and coaches the mental side of the game. And I thought, why not me? You know, someone has to do this. This is a need. Um, so I did it really out of my own needs, which is how I became a writer. Okay, interesting. And I've been reading your book, uh, Daily Wisdom, over the weekend and found some really great stuff in it. And it uh, seems like a great resource for players and coaches. And I want to just dive into some of the 
whatever you want to call them, quotes or aphorisms or pieces of advice that I resonated with. And maybe we can have a discussion on some of these different topics that you bring up. Uh, the book, just so listeners know, is formatted with one piece of advice or wisdom or something to reflect on each day of the year. So there's 365 different topics and they're all related to sports and basketball and team building and toughness and motivation and attitude and all of these different things. Is that a fair description of of the book? Yeah, you said it better than I could (laughs) have. Okay. So uh, I'll just start going through these. So body language is your mental toughness billboard. Can you elaborate on that concept a little bit? Yeah, it's funny because so many of these stories from the book go back to a personal story that happened in my playing career. But uh, that one comes from, I was in my coach's office and we were watching film and our body language of the whole team was just terrible throughout the game. And I was like, coach, this is why we're losing. It's like, we don't look like, you know, we have any chance at winning. And then I was like, how can I like as a teammate, get the rest of my teammates to buy into this like mentality of having great body language? Like, even if you're down, even if you're not playing well, even if your shots not going in, How can you still stay mentally tough in those situations? So I went to the drawing board and I wrote down, you know, everything I could come up with and then I presented it to my team. Um, But that was really just like me looking for a resource of why is body language important and trying to, you know, communicate that message to my teammates. Um, So that's where that one came from. Nice, nice. And this is a side tangent that I want to come back to that. But do you have any interest in coaching yourself someday, do you think? Oh, yeah. I I know that I was born to coach. So Mm. I am definitely going down that path. Okay. And what are you planning to do for your um, graduate school studies? Um, Anything in sports psychology or athletic leadership, depending on whichever programs I get into. Okay, nice. And so one one thing you mentioned in that section of the book, which is body language is your mental toughness billboard. I think you mentioned it kind of in passing, but it resonated with me was your body language after an air ball. And this is something that basketball players know. After you shoot an air ball, it, it's, it's an opportunity. It, everyone's eyes goes to you, like whether you're on watching on TV or the people in the stands. And if you're on the road, people are chanting air ball at you. It's a kind of a shameful moment historically in basketball, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, reflecting on my own playing experience, I feel like that's something that I really improved at over time is just sh- when you shoot an air ball, the kinds of ways that you can react to it and what that says about your confidence and your resolve and your resilience. And so some of the common things that I used to do and that I wrote about in my book and that I've seen in other players uh, is either to maybe wipe your jersey with your hands, look at your hands, try to broadcast or advertise to everyone watching that it slipped, or you can yell out in frustration to show that you're just as disappointed as everyone else, or you can kind of chuckle and smile and you know pretend like it was some, you know, try to show everyone that it was some fluke or mistake, or you can just jog back as if it was a missed shot. And I think that's, in my opinion, the most 
noble and productive way to relate to an air ball is to kind of just live in the fire, listen to the chants, don't react to the crowd, just kind of find your next, what you can do on the next defensive possession to get a stop. I'm wondering if you have any more thoughts on that specific instance or that encapsulation of the psychology of making a kind of an embarrassing mistake on the court. Yeah. So when I was presenting to my team about the importance of having great body language, I asked a question like, why do we show bad body language? Like, what's the point of that? And one of my teammates raised her hand and said, well, it's because we want to show that we care. You know, we don't want to just jog back and act like nothing happened, that we don't care that we just shot that air ball. And I said, okay, well, what's a better way to show that we care? And she said, well, you could go harder on the next play and try to make up for the mistake you made. And I thought, well, there you go. You know, so it's about finding a better way to show that you care than displaying bad body language. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, Maybe what are some other examples, common examples in basketball where you see poor body language? Some things that come to my mind are um, bad calls or getting taken out of the game or you've missed four or five shots in a row or even like being tired um, and allowing yourself to slump over or and um, kind of show weakness when you're exhausted. Are those, is that comprehensive or do you have any other examples of common points in a basketball playing experience of bad body language? Yeah. So I think a lot of the times where we see bad body language is one player makes a pass and their teammate drops it or blows the easy assist. And it's so easy to get mad at them and roll your eyes and kind of give them the cold shoulder. But I think what they need in that moment and what's best for the team in the moment isn't bad body language. It's going up to that player and giving them a high five and saying, we got this on the next play. And I think that right there is the epitome of a tough player. Someone who can say, I know you made this mistake and it makes me look bad, but I'm more committed to the future in the next play. So I'm going to display good body language here. Yeah, that's great. You see that a lot too. I don't, you, did you say you played softball? No, I played soccer. Oh, that's right. Okay. Well, I, I played baseball and that's a big deal for pitchers when uh, there's an error in the field and that's a huge, <laughs> you know, pitcher works really hard. Maybe this tough at bat you make a great pitch and get the ground ball to shortstop. It's supposed to be a double play, and the shortstop boots it or something. And oftentimes it's subconscious, and it's not even deliberate, but the camera will flash to the picture, and the pitcher will react in disgust over the error. Or there's pitchers who take it stoically, and they clap and encourage their, their teammates. And so that's definitely a nice uh, test case for the pitcher's character in that moment. And it's hard. I'm not, you know... It's, it's easier said than done to have the right body language in those moments, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's so tough to make that little mind shift from you're making me look bad to, hey, what's going to help the team on the next play? How can I help us be better for the next play? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to another page. Um, actually, it's a perfect segue from what you just said. So make the, make the next right play. Uh, that was one of the pages. Could you talk about that and the implications of that kind of attitude? 
Yeah, so uh, a fun fact, I like to run marathons and ultra marathons. In, really? Well, I did this in the off season while I was playing, but wow. you know now I can do that uh, throughout the year. But one of the things I learned is that we get overwhelmed when we're thinking about you know all the miles that are behind us or all the miles we have in front of us like the most mentally tough thing you can do is to run the mile you're in not to say like I'm exhausted because I've already run all these miles and think about you know what went wrong in the past or what could go wrong in the future but just to say I'm gonna take the next step to the best of my ability and I think that is the most mentally tough thing you can do is say it's about what's right in front of me it's not about what happened in the past or what could happen in the future it's like I'm going to stay in the moment and I think that's what I've learned from ultra marathoning that also translates to any other sport that's fascinating I want to linger there for a second so you what is your current training regimen look like in terms of is that what you're training for generally like how often do you I don't know how to phrase this question hold on let me restart so what are you currently training for another race and when was what was the last marathon or ultra marathon that you ran and what did that look like yeah it's been I haven't ran another one since uh 2019 just because of covid uh, mm-hmm. But I'm training for a 50 miler on May 7th, and uh, the miles are building. But right now, I'm at about uh, 20 miles or so a week. Mm. And so, 20 miles a week. How many? Like, what does that look like practically? How many per day, and how many days out of the week do you run currently? Yeah, it's like three days a week right now, and it's like six or seven miles per day. Okay, and then where is the ultra marathon in May? It's in South Carolina. Okay, and is that mostly through mountain terrain? What what, what does the actual course look like, or whatever you want to call it? It's a swampy terrain. So when I was mm. looking at uh, races, I was like, "That looks absolutely miserable." I'm in, <laughs> and yeah. So I come from a runner or a, a family of runners. My my grandfather was an ultra marathoner. He did some fifty milers. He tried a hundred miler in California and got sick around in the eighties. Uh, didn't quite finish. Um, my grandmother was also ran marathons and ultra marathons. My mom, my uncle was a scholarship runner. I'm 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 not quite as much of a runner, but I've been getting into it recently. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been timing myself or anything. I probably run, I'll go for like a two mile run a few times a week. And what you mentioned resonated with me, even at that kind of beginner's level, which is towards the end of the run when I'm getting tired and I'm getting exhausted, I can catch myself thinking I'll start anticipating, okay, that I have to get around this turn, I have to get around that turn. And then it's a straight away and I'm kind of calculating how much longer I have and I in in kind of relationship to the work that I do in, in mindfulness practice, it does offer a sense of relief to just come back to actually feeling the breaths come and go and your and your feet pounding on the ground and realize that you're actually just okay and that you're not, even though you're suffering, it's really not bad enough to make you want to quit. And it's just 
I don't know, it, it offers a sense of relief when you come back to the present moment while running. I've, I've certainly noticed that. I'm wondering what kinds of things you do at your more advanced level. Let's say you're on mile, I don't know, uh, 26 out of 50 and you're tired. Like what, what kinds of things do you do to continue and to not lose focus or uh, motivation during the run? Yeah, so at that point, every part of your body is radiating pain. Like, I remember being like, why does the tip of my nose even hurt? Like, that's not doing anything. Um, So it's just a pain game that you have to play. And what I always say is, like, starting an ultramarathon is, like, so cool because, you know, everyone's sitting on the sidelines, like, wow, these people are amazing, they're doing an ultra marathon, and you're excited to start, you have tons of energy, mm. and then the finish is really exciting, because, you know, you're there, you did it, it's easy to, you know, just relax and look back on all that you've accomplished, but the middle, that's where you find <laughs> out it. what you're made of, yeah, right. so I look at it as, I don't listen to music uh, for as long as I can go during races. So I think my last run was a 50K, or my last race was a 50K. And I think mile 21 is when I gave in and listened to music. And people are like, why would you do that? And I'm like, I want to play this mental game. Like, I want to actually see what I'm made of. Because we don't find out what we're made of when things are going well and life's a breeze, when it's all smooth sailing. Smooth sailing doesn't make skillful sailors, right? Mm -hmm. So we find out what we're made of when times get tough. And that's why I fell in love with running because I want to find out what I'm truly made of. Mm. Yeah. What is the, how is your training building? What is it, what are you building towards? So say like in the month leading up to, the 50k or the 50 miler run or whatever what will that training regimen look like um it's brutal uh one of my training days i have 20 in the morning and 20 in the evening um so you're basically doing you're shooting 40 miles in one day but they're just broken up yeah and like a week before that it's a marathon and that's just for training so yeah, the month before is always the toughest. Wow. Yeah, there's uh, people, you know, when, you, when people talk about um, amazing feats in sports, there's so many out there. When you like, you just, Nadal just won his 21st Grand Slam, whatever you call it. I, I don't know the tennis that well, but he's amazing. Watching him is unbelievable. Uh, you know, obviously, watching someone like LeBron James, like, there's so many examples of amazing feats in athletics. But the one that I can't quite even believe is the times that people run on marathons. I actually can't, like the way I think about it now, it still doesn't even seem possible. Is it true that people run marathons at like a 4.30 pace? Is that is that right? Something like that. I mean, you know, they're they're getting close to breaking two hours. So it's, it's incredible how fast... Uh, they can sustain, you know, that pace for that long. That doesn't seem possible. That's like, I don't know, like even just trying to run one six minute mile for me is like, it would take everything 
to, to, to do it once, right? And like to run 26 straight miles at 4.30, I do not know how people do that. That is, that is incredible. Oh yeah, it's a daunting task for sure. Let's take a quick break from the conversation so I can thank you for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate you engaging with the work. And you should feel free to reach out to me at contact at billyhanson.net if you want to give any feedback or just say hi. My new book has been out for a while now, and it's been great to have so many people reach out to me who have read it and seem to have enjoyed it and are resonating with the work. The book is about my own athletic experience from youth sports through college athletics, and it focuses specifically on the mental difficulties that I faced as a college athlete suffering from deep anxiety and depression and falling out of love with basketball and wanting to quit, and then how the practice of meditation and updating my life habits and philosophies helped me recover and enjoy a great senior season with a new coach where I not only played my best basketball, but also enjoyed the sport more than I ever have before. So if you're interested, if you're an athlete or a coach or a parent, or if you know someone who might be interested I think specifically struggling athletes is the target of the book. So if you know someone who's going through a tough time, you should pick up the book and hand it to them because I think it's the perfect resource for that struggling athlete. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. And now back to my conversation with Julie Fournier. Yeah. So coming back to your book, um, the, the make the right next play, it's something that I've, it's in my, when I teach meditation to, to athletes, this practice of in, in, on the meditation chair, when you sit and you follow the breath or you listen to sounds or you, you're picking some object of focus, your mind will often drift away into distraction, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, regretting something, worrying about something, planning for something, getting tired, all these different distractions arise. And the practice, especially in the beginning, is just to come back to the present moments and your object of awareness again and again and again. And what I encourage athletes to do is when they get to the court or to the field or to the pool or whatever it is, is to bring that same attitude. So when you notice on the court or on the field that you've become frustrated or you're lazy or you're, you've lost your competitive spirit because you're tired or you're mad about a bad call or whatever it is to just come back to maybe something very granular like your feet on the floor or the next breath and then what your role is on the next play and that might be cheering on teammates from the bench it might be um, changing up a ball screen coverage but just again and again coming back to the next play and so I'm wondering if you have any more thoughts on that and how you try to integrate that into your writing, into your teaching to other athletes. Yeah, I think we get so consumed with like what's next and how this is going to end up, you know, what's the end result going to be? And I think you just have to get in the habit of coming back to what can I control? And the only thing we control control is like this present moment. So we just have to focus all of our energy into this moment. Uh, That's what mentally tough people do. They focus all their energy into what they can control. And that's always right now. It's never what happened in the past or what could happen in the future. 
mentally tough people always focus on right now. Mm, nice. Okay, another page. Uh, nerves start neutral. What does that mean? Yeah, so I remember being in my public speaking class and going up to my professor after the first day of class and saying, I don't think I can do this. I'm too nervous. And she's like, no, you're not. And I was like, uh, <laughs> what do you mean? Yes, I am. And she's like, no, you're not. You're excited. And I was like, no, I'm nervous. And she's like, no, no, no. You don't get it. They're the same thing. Like the feeling someone who's nervous is getting is the same as someone who's excited is getting. It's just your body preparing you for a moment, but how you interpret it is different. And that's something I wish someone would have told me early on as a player because, you know, throughout my high school career, it was like, all right, I have to, you know, perform and the game's on the line. I'm so nervous. And it's like, if I would have just told myself I was excited, it would have taken all the pressure off. I, I would have known that my body's just preparing me for the moment. And I would have performed, you know, stress-free. And the result would have been a lot better because of that. So it's all about what you tell yourself about what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. And that was a huge learning curve for me too um i was i was anxious by nature or still am kind of but just reframing that as you know if you actually pay close attention to the to the raw sensations of anxiety whether it's mm -hmm. the tension in your chest the feelings in your hands or face the kind of energy in your body and then in another moment you pay attention to how it feels to be excited like you said, it really is the same thing. It's just the kind of valence that you put on top of it that's different. And the other thing that I've found useful is to think if you didn't feel any nerves before a big game, something would be wrong. And to, framing it mm -hmm. that way, I think helps players and performers. And even in currently when I'm doing things that make me nervous, makes me understand that, yeah, it's, you're just, it, it, it's okay. And it's actually good that you feel this way and trying to get rid of it is not a good solution trying you know pretending like it would be better to feel none of that before something big in life is, is not the way to to think about it yeah absolutely yeah. there is one person you listen to and you believe completely more than anyone else and it's you so mm. if you can manage what you say to yourself and tell yourself good things and true things, you're going to perform a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How about joy is in the doing, not in the getting or not the getting? Yeah. So that's, that's probably one of my favorite subjects to write about and talk about and learn about. Um, <laughs> I think for so long as a player and even as a person, I postponed joy. And I was like, okay, once I win this, I'm going to be happy. And once I achieve this, once I do this, once I get there, then I'll be happy. And I never was. It was always like, okay, well, I won that, but then the next season starts. And so now I have to win it again, and that didn't really fulfill me. So I think we've been fed the lie that once we achieve something or once we win something, 
then we'll be happy. But what we find throughout the journey is that the journey is what fulfills us. That's that's a fun part. And that's where the joy lies. So I think if we can realize that the joy is in the journey, not in the destination, um, not only will we work harder, uh, but we'll be more excited to show up every day um, to work towards that reward. Nice. How do you think about, so when you, when you find yourself in that frame of mind of this kind of um, future-oriented um, state where you think once I accomplish X, Y, and Z, then I can relax and be happy and enjoy what I have. When you find yourself in that space, are there any techniques or tips or ways that you try to get back to the more process-oriented frame of mind where you find joy in doing instead of getting or accomplishing? Yeah, so I was watching a video today actually about Tom Brady. He was in an interview on 60 Minutes and he was talking about winning all of his Super Bowls and he had the feeling after he won those that was like, is that it? Like there has <laughs> to be more. Um, so I think winning is kind of this empty promise that, you know, once we get there, then we're happy. Um, but if you look at guys like Kobe Bryant, it's like he always talks about how much fun he has just going to the gym and shooting. And I'm mm. like, oh, my goodness. Like, yes, when I look back on my career, like the most fulfilling times I've had, as strange as it sounds, was like being alone in a gym, just like relaxed and just enjoying getting better. Um, so I try to remember that. Yeah, that's really great. Um, who do you, I'm going to branch off a little bit here. Who do you look to as some of the best voices? So you have this Twitter account. Uh, is it called Basketball Psychology? Is that what it's mm -hmm. called? Yeah. And it's very popular and it's got some great content on there. Um, in, in all of your research and the things that you've found to post and all, and all these different stuff that you put out, who do you find to be some of the best voices in the sports psychology space, whether that's players or coaches or sports psychologists? Who do you look to often when you're putting out content? Yeah, I think there's so many uh, sources of inspiration out there. Like I will talk to someone, you know, an old friend from middle school and I'll get an idea for a tweet but mm -hmm. there's really no shortage of places that you can find inspiration but I'll give you a Mount Rushmore of mm -hmm. my favorite people to go to uh, the first one is Pat Summit and mm -hmm. John Wooden mm -hmm. uh, Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan uh, okay. so those are my four that I you know, always look back to because their success is undeniable. Um, mm. So I try to look back at, okay, what did they say? You know, what process did they have? And then I try to share that. Nice. Have you read any of uh, Phil Jackson's work or his books? Yeah. Yeah, I have. He's, he's very Zen-like. I love it. Yeah. I just, what you said about winning and winning not being everything and you might are you working on a project called winning isn't everything 
Uh, it's called Beyond Winning. Yeah. Beyond Winning. Okay. Um, but he had a similar quote to what you mentioned about Tom Brady, which was he had spent all this time climbing the mountain, you know, winning these close playoff games. I think this was the f- maybe the first year that Jordan won. Uh, it was mm-hmm. their first championship together. And he was describing it in his book, Sacred Hoops, how he had been so hyper-focused on this championship, and understandably so. There were so much expectations around the Bulls and the young talent on the team with Pippen and Jordan, etc. And he describes a great part of the book where he describes the feeling of being back home for the first time after winning the championship, after the celebration, after the parade, and things had finally settled and he felt this kind of emptiness that he that was hard to describe, but he said that that was one of the first times in his life that he realized that, okay, putting the trophy in the trophy case really isn't what this is about. And he almost missed, it was like he, he missed being in the, the fight or the, the pressure and the uncertainty. And I honestly felt that way too when I was a graduate assistant and we won the Armac Championship. And I was just completely pedal to the floor for weeks, you know, scouting reports and making sure all the players were doing good and academically eligible and travel and making sure the uniforms were all packed up a uh, little, you know, I would have nightmares about forgetting the jerseys on a road trip, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then we won and I was on the bus on the way home and I was like, man, I thought that, I thought that this would be sweeter. And it's not like it, it wasn't satisfying, but it, it wasn't quite as, blissful as i would have imagined so mm-hmm. anyway that was a rant off of your your comment about tom brady that that i thought was that was interesting yeah i mean there have been so many studies done on these successful people um you look at billy donovan who won a ton at florida and he would mm-hmm. win a national championship and then he'd be like why am i depressed and <laughs> i think it's because you know, we have been fed that lie that like, all right, if you win a championship, then all your dreams come true and you're happy. And then we look back and we're like, okay, you know, that felt good. The win felt good for a day. And then it was like, all right, that's gone. Um, and we look back and we're like, okay, well, what was most satisfying? And it was like, being in the gym all those days, knowing you're getting better, knowing you're working towards something bigger than yourself. And so there's this misconception that the result is what's going to fill you, fulfill you. Yeah. And that's, that's just a lie. What's going to fulfill you is the process. Yeah. So how do you think about, cause we, as athletes and as people in the world who are trying to carve out, you know, financial security and a family or whatever else we're, we're doing, you do need to have goals and accomplish things. So how do you personally balance that dynamic between striving to achieve things and also staying present um i know that's kind of a broad question but you can pick up on anything there like what what do you how do you think about goal setting while understanding that achieving the goals isn't going to ultimately be what makes you happy or fulfilled no yeah i think you need to define success for yourself or else comparison will um after I wrote my first book, I hit a milestone and then I went to Google and I was like, how many books does the average, you know, author sell in a year? And then I 
I stopped before I pressed enter and I was like, I'm about to let Google define what success is for me. Instead of, I had set the definition of success for myself as if one person emails me and says, this book helped, that's going to be what success on this book is for me, right? It's not going to be, I sold this many copies. It's going to be one person said this book helped. And so, so often we get caught up in, okay, you know, what's the numbers that this person says is successful? Like how many points per game do I have to average to be successful? It's like define for yourself that waking up every day an hour before practice and getting up 500 shots, that's success for me. Um, And I think that's where the differentiation lies. That's great. Yeah, that's a message that I need to hear this week. Uh, We're recording this one week after my first book came out. And I've been joking with my girlfriend that my uh, my self-worth has been uh, 100% correlated with my Amazon rank. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going through that right now of reminding myself of, you know, yeah, it, it, you don't want to get so caught up. And, you know, once like, yeah, the book, it's, it's amazing how quickly you get used to success. It's like, oh, this is doing pretty well. This is better than I thought. But then like you wake up the next morning, you're like, oh, I want more. I want more sales and then I'll be happy. Something like that. Um, so that's interesting that you went through the, something similar and you're more, uh, disciplined than I am in not Googling average book sales. <laughs> that, that's funny. Well, I can tell you right now, your book has already helped me and I've only read the first two chapters, so I'm sure it's going to oh, help well, many others. That's so kind. Thank you. So you mentioned, uh, Pat Summit on your, um, Mount Rushmore and I'm going to skip ahead here in my outline, but, um, one of your pages is, or your chapters is live by the rules for success. And you list Pat Summit's 10 rule. I think there's 10 rules. And the last rule was the one that I really resonated with. It's uh, handle success like you handle failure. Have you thought much about her advice there and what that means to you and the athletes that you work with? Yeah, it just goes back to hard work because what do you do after you lose by 40 points? Like, oh, we got to go back to the gym and to practice tomorrow and we got to work so hard. And what do you do after you win a championship? It's it's counterintuitive to go back and to work just as hard as you would after a loss, but that's what the greats do. They handle success like they handle failure with hard work. Mm. Yeah, that's great. There's a quote in my book about... um. It's from uh, Zen and the Art of Archery, which is a really great book. And this guy goes to Japan and he works with a Zen master and they, they're practicing the art of, I think it's pronounced Kudo. It's a, that's the Zen form of archery. And for the first couple months, I think, of practice, you know, he's practicing for hours every day and he's not permitted to shoot at a target or to aim at a target because the master doesn't want him to be caught up in the results of his attempts, right? Mm -hmm. And finally, he gets to set up a target and he finds himself in this kind of flow state where he's pulling the arrow back effortlessly and it's coming off of his hand effortlessly and he's been nailing the target over and over again. 
And the Zen master notices that he gets a little bit prideful, gets a little bit jubilant about his performance. And the master advises him, okay, you've, you've been practicing for months now how to deal with failure and how to deal with difficulty. You now need to practice how to deal with success and to not allow yourself to get prideful. You need to, I think the quote was something like, you need to act as though someone else shot a great shot rather than yourself, and that will help mm-hmm. you stay centered. And I thought that was really great advice because we talk a lot in sports about how to handle failure, and we should because that's a big part of success in sports and life. But handling success is also important, and it's easy to get full of yourself and, like you said, lose the kind of drive or the attention to detail that brought you that success. So I don't know if you can pick up on anything there, if you have anything. Yeah, throughout my junior college days, um, in my second year, I was going through a shooting slump or, you know, whatever you want to call it. A lot of people don't believe in slumps, um, but I just wasn't shooting the ball well. Um, And so the next day I texted my coach and I was like, hey, can you open the gym? You know, I just had this horrible game, so I wanted to get in and work on my shot. Um, And I did for like four hours or something ridiculous and then a few games later I had set the record for the most threes scored in a game and how many was that um, I think it was not eight or nine Uh, um nice nothing crazy but (laughs) (laughs) the next day my coach was like hey do you remember what you did after you were going through that slump and I was like yeah, I shot for like four hours. Um, and she was like, why aren't you doing that right now? And Mm. that's when it hit me. Like, if you want to be great, you have to have a built in system of like, Hey, this is how I'm going to practice no matter how I perform. Um, and that's where that mindset of handling success, like you handle failure comes in handy because it's so easy after we're successful to relax uh but the greats don't they get in the gym just as much good game bad game shots on shots off win loss they're in the gym the same amount Mm, that's really great that's that's great okay got a couple more for you here dreams without action are just dreams yeah so we see a lot of people setting new year's resolutions um So I'll give you an example. One year, I was like, I want to write a book this year. That's my New Year's resolution. Hmm. My New Year's resolution should have been, I want to write two hours for every day. But it Hmm. wasn't. It was just, I want to be an author and write a book this year. And I would just kind of put that off. Uh, I was like, okay, I'll get into it. I'll start writing later. When the inspiration comes to me. But dreams without action are just dreams. We have to actually say, okay, I want to write a book this year. This is what I'm going to do today about that dream. So you have to have those actions every single day that will get you closer to those dreams. Nice. What is your current uh, writing regimen? 
how do you think about writing and when do you write? How do you deal with writer's block? Is there any, like, how, how does that look these days when you're trying to work on these projects? Yeah, there's a lot of times where I sit at my computer with a blank document in front of me and I'm like, I have no good ideas right now. But at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, well, I never get speaker's block. Like, I never am like, sorry, friend, I don't know what to say in this conversation, so I'm not <laughs> going to speak. It's like, we always have words we can say. They might not be good, but they're still words. And the process of finding the good words is just writing through the bad words. So mm. the more you write, the more likely you are to come up with something good. So uh, I started my blog as a sophomore in college. And on my third blog post, I had nine subscribers. And one of them was me. And one of them was my mom. So technically I had seven. Um, and I was kind of like, I don't really have a good idea this week because I was doing a weekly blog. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll write about entitlement because I feel like that's a subject that I'm passionate about. But I didn't think it was good. But I was like, I'm just going to write anyways. And that blog has over 190,000 views. So Really? Wow. So much of it is like, we think we have writer's block. And I'm like, there's no such thing. Like, there's always something to write about. Like, whether you think it's good or it's bad, that's irrelevant. Just write. Mm, that's really great. Um, I watched a documentary on Hemingway. Uh, I think it must have been last summer or something. It came out on PBS. It's really good if anyone's interested. Uh, and he talked about his writing regiment and he was a drunk and got hammered every afternoon so that's not a good thing but just for, for him he uh he said when he sat down to write in the morning and didn't have anything he tried to write one true sentence he said he just thought okay let me just start with one true sentence doesn't matter if it's good or bad just let me write something true and end it with a period and that usually was enough to get him going for the day and i thought that was really pretty and interesting advice yeah yeah, that's good advice because, you know, we underestimate the power of just getting started, just getting something on the page. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Okay. Um, don't guard your time. Guard. Don't just guard your time. Guard your energy. Mm, yeah. So I think athletes are very likely to get burnt out like we spend so much time and so much energy and so much effort in the game that it's easy to be like I don't feel like doing this anymore I've already given too much so we actually have to learn to say no to some things like okay I just had this great game and I want to go out and celebrate it's like you have to learn to say no because the next day you're not going to feel like working on your game more so I think it's important to learn how to say no. And that's something I struggled with throughout my college career because I'm such a people pleaser. Like if someone wanted me to help them with their homework, I'm like, yeah, I'll help you even though I have more homework than you. Um, <laughs> but you have to learn how to guard your energy because that is so important. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with that. It's not, you know, time management is one thing, but yeah, energy management is another. And there's certain things and activities that can really drain that, especially for inward people who don't always draw energy from social interaction and um, activities, stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I think you have to be an expert on yourself. Like, know what drains you and stay away from that. Don't just, like, be like, oh, I feel drained sometimes. I don't know why. Like, actually take into account, like, okay, I just went through this situation and I feel drained because of that. I'm not going to do that again if I don't have to. Mm, nice, nice. Okay, last section from the book that I want to talk about, or it's actually two that are related to each other. So the first is how you do anything is how you do everything. And the second is competitors do not distinguish between venues. And I thought those two were were related. So can you elaborate on one or both of those? Yeah, that's those are very related. Um, throughout my college career, I was like, I don't really care about school. I'm just here to play basketball. And I think that's a terrible mentality for a player to have because you can learn so much uh, off the court that will add value to your life long after you retire. Um, So at first, I went into college with this mentality. I don't care what I major in. I don't care what the school's like. I just care about playing basketball. Um, And I came to find out that, like, what you learn playing the game of basketball is going to follow you around wherever you go. So, for example, I learned I'm going to be on time for every practice. Otherwise, I'm going to have to run sprints. And so I'm on time to everything now. Uh, But it's not just that. It's like, okay, I want to do every drill perfect like I want my footwork to be perfect you know I want to talk during every drill like I want my communication be perfect and that's the way that I ended up being in the classroom Uh, just out of habit I was like I'm going to communicate to my group mates I'm going to do this assignment to the best of my ability it's like you think you can compartmentalize your life but actually, your habits are going to follow you around no matter what you do. So you should choose the best habits that will follow you into every area of your life. Yeah, that's really great. And just to piggyback off of that a little bit, um, I think there's also a, a psychological aspect to it in terms of nervousness and anxiety and confidence. And something that I, when I wrote my book and reflected on my own playing career, Um, one of the really important things that changed for me when I improved was not distinguishing between activities or people or events in that, um, for the longest time, it was like I waited for things to quote unquote matter to bring whatever, you know, intensity or energy that I wanted to bring to those moments. And that ended up mounting pressure on the things that I felt like quote unquote mattered. So like when it was a big game or a pretty girl at a party that I wanted to talk to or a big math test, when those things mattered, I got overly anxious to an unhealthy degree and ended up inhibiting my performance because I put so much pressure on myself. 
And it's not like I'm, I was perfect and I'm still not perfect at this, but the more that I was able to treat every situation with the same attitude, energy, respect, effort, then the boundaries between those things started to collapse. And, you know, I brought similar mindfulness or energy to my moments in the cafeteria during lunch that I did to a, you know, the end of a close game. And again, I wasn't perfect at that, but I think that definitely helped me in my, the way that I approached different events and different activities for sure. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a really important piece of advice. And I think it's, um, it's something that it's also encouraging because you can practice it in any situation, you know, walking from your apartment to your car, you can do that mindfully and with good, you know, body language. And it's not like you have to be a rigid robot all day and you can't relax, but just having that mind state where you're not turning on and turning off the right attitude and effort, right? Yeah, I heard this great story about Jimmy Carter and he was in an interview talking about all his great accomplishments and he was like, yeah, I finished 59th in my naval class of 400. Like, that was so hard and mm. I did that. And he's just talking about all his accomplishments and he's like beaming with pride. And then the interviewer asks, did you give your best every single day? And he takes a minute and he's like, no, I didn't. And the attitude just like shifts in him. Like he feels this like, gosh, what could I have accomplished if I would have done my best? Like not just some days, not just the days where there's a test or a big game. It's like every day. So he spent the rest of his life trying to come up with a better answer to that question to where he could say, yes, I gave mm. my best every single day. And I think that's a great ambition for all of us to have is like, I don't want anyone to ever look at Julie after she's gone and say, man, she had so much potential. I want them to say like she did everything she could she could she wrote every book she had an idea about she ran every mile she possibly could she gave her best every single day i think that's something we should all aspire to mm. yeah that's really great and uh i think jimmy carter's still up to still practicing that at age 97 isn't he oh i'm sure yeah yeah that's very cool okay well last question for you julie it's been really great talking to you um so given what you know about basketball and psychology and your experience and everything you've thought about and written about, let's say you were going to talk to a high school uh, senior who was not going to Duke or North Carolina, but maybe kind of in the middle, the way you and I were, you know, picking between schools and levels and trying to find a good fit and a good college experience. What advice would you give to that person in terms of, finding a right fit, what things to look for in order to make the most of their college athletic experience? So when I was being recruited, I had narrowed my options down to Colorado Christian and Auburn University Montgomery. Hmm. And my dad said to me, who do you want to become? Like, look at these head coaches and ask yourself, who do you want to become like? And that really made me think like, 
this game is not about what you accomplish. It's about who you become. So make all your decisions based off of who you want to become. Mm. Yeah, that's really good advice. And yeah, thank you for that. I, um, Julie, it was really a pleasure talking to you and meeting you and reading your book. And um, I wish you the best of luck with everything you're up to with your next books and your ultra marathons. And it's clear to me that you're a really positive voice in the space. So thank you for coming on the show. And maybe we'll do another part two someday. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for publishing your book. I know it's going to help a lot of people. It's a very generous thing to do is to take your experiences and to write them out for the sole purpose of helping someone else. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thanks, Julie. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Just a reminder that my new book is available. The book is called Harder Than I Thought, Easier Than I Feared, Sports, Anxiety, and the Power of Meditation. And the book is the perfect resource for a struggling athlete, an athlete who's lost their confidence or is no longer enjoying the sport they play, or for any athlete who wants to make the most of their athletic experience while also setting themselves up for a good life after sports. And I think the book will be of interest to coaches and parents and fans as well. So you can find a link to the book in the show notes for this episode, or you can visit billyhansen.net forward slash book to pick up a copy. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you here for the next episode. sauce.